Oh, Father, we're thankful for hymns that have been created where the words and the music just match in such a way that it moves us and takes us, uh, takes our soul to, to a place where it feels that we are near You. And there's, there's something about just being in, in a large group of people and singing together, holy, 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 that transports us, Father, to that place where we recognize Your nearness and recognize every truth of every promise that never fails that You have made to us. Primarily that You're our Father, we are Your children, and never will You forsake us, never will You leave us. And the beauty of that holiness, Father, there, there's no way that we can describe it. But when You draw us near and we catch a glimpse of that kavod, the, the greatness of Your presence, that we feel the weight of Your presence upon us, then it is a pleasure to worship You. And not just necessary, but privilege and, and, and opportunity, Father, for, for joy in our life. And now we turn our minds to Your Word and, and we pray that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we discern, Father. We pray to be a discerning people of Your Word, that it help us to discern the times and the events and the circumstances around us in our day-to-day in such a way that we bring glory to You through our faithfulness. And through the beauty of the holiness, Father, that You have brought into our life that is perceived through generosity and self-control and patience and kindness and gentleness and above all, love. We pray, Father, never, ever, ever to take for granted the grace that comes to us nor this Word that blesses us. And we pray for this blessing in these next minutes, Father, as we press our mind into these texts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up uh, this morning where we left off in the weeks leading up to Easter with our study of holy words. Uh, We're starting in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation. Each of these messages, just one word that describes what it is that we see from Genesis to Revelation as we press our mind in into the Bible from, from beginning to the end and find that story. In fact, this would be a good, a good place, and we haven't done this in a couple of weeks because of the Easter messages, but this would be a good place to remind ourselves of what we're saying about the Bible. That the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, about man, about what went wrong when sin entered into the world and what God is doing to put it back together. A, a few years ago, and actually, not, not that I think about it, it's more than a few years ago, it was about 14 years ago, about the year 2000, there was a group of us that were involved with uh, tours of, of Christians over into Israel that were invited by the, uh, the Israel Tourist Board or Bureau to, to go at a time when there was some violence that was, you know, and some... some 
some, uh, some conflicts that were beginning to escalate in Israel. They wanted us that were involved in some of these tours to go over and to see the tours and to see the urban areas and then to get onto the, the, the chat sites. And back when, when websites had chat sites, it tells you how long ago that was. You know, but, to, but to do it with these tourist agencies and allow people to, to see what it was that we were seeing and to hear what we were experiencing in Israel during that time. And, uh, I, you know, when you've, you've been to Israel, there, there are just certain things that every time you go to it, you never, it never gets old. When you get up in the morning and you've been, uh, you, you got the night before to the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from the, uh, the Temple Mount. And you're, you're, you're maybe in your hotel intercontinental, uh, it's called the Seven Arches. And you wake up and you go down into that cafeteria and it's nothing but just a glass wall as you're eating breakfast with the Kidron Valley. And there is the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock. And uh, one of the things that you always do when you go to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount is you go to the Wailing Wall. And that is, uh, that's uh, uh, right there on the north side of, uh, of, of the Temple Mount. There's a, a slide that will show up here real quick. You'll see the, the Dome of the Rock just to the north on this picture. Above that grove of trees, you find the Western Wall. And every time you go, you, you, you go to the Western Wall and, and you touch it, and it's considered to be one of the, the, the remaining pieces of Solomon's Temple, or what made up the Temple Mount during the time of Solomon. And uh, we're there, and our guide disappeared for a minute. And really more than a guide, he, uh, the, our guide was actually a very well-known archaeologist by the name of Charles Page. He's written a couple of books on archaeology and the story of the land that, that you can buy to this day. He disappeared, came back, and said, guess what? I have gained us entrance through this door, just, just if you're facing the western wall, uh, it would be to your left, which would be to the north. And he said, I, I want you to follow me, but don't say anything. And we went through that door, and the next thing you know, we're down below the Temple Mount. We're down below where the Temple of God was, in all of these corridors, and all of these rooms. It's kind of like first century Disneyland with all of the corridors and all of the rooms where the priests would live and these kinds of things. And as you're going through there, it, it, it's dark and there are gigantic stones and there's turns all over the place. And at some point you kind of lose your orientation of where you are, north, south, east, and west. And then you come into a room that's basically a little bit smaller than this stage and you stop and you look up into the corner and there's a sign that says in Hebrew and in English, according to a certain reading in the, the Talmud, you are now directly under the Holy of Holies. And that, my friends, is one of the most sublime moments in my entire life. Poignant and incredible to think that I don't know how deep I am into the earth at that point, but just above me, a certain distance, the angels of God appeared. that an angel showed up to Zechariah and said, your son is going to be a herald to the Messiah. And not only that, but where the, the glory of God Himself appeared on the earth. One of the most sublime moments in my life to think that I was that close to a place where the glory of God was seen. A couple of weeks ago, we left off with Solomon, the son of David, the wise king of Israel. Which brings us today to the temple, the most prominent structure to the Jewish people. And when you think about it and you read about it in the New Testament, an imposing image for Christians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourself 
are God's what, church? Temple. And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. Let's say that verse together. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in your midst? So the first question we want to answer this morning is, what is the temple? Well, we're not going to in any way try to be exhaustive in our definition of it. We don't have time. There are lots of books that you can go to to read about it. But two statements for our purposes this morning. The first is this. The temple was a place for the presence of God in the midst of His people. The temple was a place for the presence of God in the midst of His people. And then number two, the temple was the place for worship and atonement. The temple was the place for worship and atonement. There were synagogues all over the world. They were all over Israel. They were even in Jerusalem. And they were all over the known world at that time. The synagogue, by and large, was not a place for worship, even though worship might happen there. But the synagogue was a place where people were instructed about God. They were taught about how to live the life that God wanted them to live as light to all of the nations. It was a way to to maintain faith in God, especially if you were a Jewish person living among non-Jewish people and having to, to retain your faith in places where a lot of times it was not appreciated. Now, worship could take place from time to time in the synagogue, but the primary place in the heart and the mind of a Jewish person in the first century was the temple. And what we're going to do this morning is just go over the short history of the temple, and the best way that I know how to start is with a summary statement, and this is one that uh, will make sense as we go through this message, but there were three temples in two temple periods. When we think biblically about the temple... There were three temples. Actually, there was a fourth that was never built. There's the Ezekiel temple that he saw in a vision. He was seen, but it was never built. Three temples, physical temples, two temple periods. The first one, Temple 1, Solomon. You will remember that David originally wanted to build the temple for God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, we learn in verse 1 at the very beginning of that chapter, David is finally settled into his palace. He's been a guy that's been on the run. He's been a guy that's been trying to establish his kingdom. There's been a lot of work. There's not been a lot of time for him to be very domestic or to prepare a place for him to live. And now, by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has found that respite. He's found that time of rest. He's able to build himself a palace, a house, and he decides that he wants to build a house for God. And he goes to Nathan the prophet and he says, you know what, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to donate a lot of money to be able to build this this temple for God. And Nathan says, like just about any prophet I think would, if you're willing to fund it, do what your heart says and the Lord be with you. And that night, as Nathan tries to go to sleep, the Lord comes to Nathan in a dream and says, you are to go back to David tomorrow and you're to tell him no. That he is not going to build a house for me, but I am going to build a a home, a dynastic house for him. And so we speed forward now to the time near the end of David's life. We're now in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And a lot of time has passed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're near the end of David's life. And David, you would think that as he has gotten older and has gotten wiser, that he's gotten a a lot smarter about what holiness entails and what faithfulness to God and with God entails. But he makes a horrendous mistake by numbering all of his his fighting men. And this is a, a horrendous, horrific sin before God. And God comes to him displeased and says, I'm going to give you multiple choice here. You're going to choose one of three consequences for this sin. The first is you can choose three years of famine. 
Or you can choose three months of being routed by your enemies. Or you can choose three days of the angel of the Lord ravaging the land. And by that he meant that the angel of the Lord was going to draw his sword and he was going to go through the land ravaging the people. And David is in a desperate position, but he is at least wise enough to know that to fall into the hands of God is sometimes a more merciful thing than to fall into the hands of men. And he says, I want to fall into the hands of of a merciful God. And so it happens. And 70,000 men of Israel die in a plague because of that choice. That's true. It's in the Bible. And this angel of the Lord is now headed to Jerusalem, to the holy city of God, to destroy it. And it's there that the Lord stops him. And in 1 Corinthians 21, look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord was then, the Lord had stopped him, standing at the threshing floor of Ada the Jebusite, and some of the other uh, passages he's referred to as Ornan, but it's Ada the Jebusite, 1 Chronicles 21. And David is, is so moved by, by what has happened to Israel. And, and there's guilt. And, and there is, at the same time, there's relief that the Lord has, has, has told this angel to stop. That David offers to buy the piece of property for 600 shekels of gold. And the deal is made. And David says that this is where we're going to build the altar. And this is where we're, we're going to build sac- a place for the sacrifices, for, for burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to be made. And when he, he makes that decision and says that, the Lord tells the angel to put his sword back in its sheath. And David says in chapter 22, verse 1, the house of the Lord is to be here and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So having found this place where the angel of the Lord has been halted by God, David goes to that place, buys that piece of land, that threshing floor from the Jebusite for 600 shekels of of gold, and that is where he's going to build the altar. Now we drop down in chapter 22 to verse 6. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the temple, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And at that point, David begins to reveal the great plans that he has for the temple that Solomon is going to build. The blueprints for it. He also reveals all of the great wealth. David is not just going to have this thing built on the backs of the people and their contributions. David himself is is forfeiting much of his, his collected wealth and treasure in order to fund its construction. And then he begins to reveal the organization of all of the people who are going to serve the temple and take care of the temple and take care of the people. And not long after that, David dies and Solomon becomes king and settles into the palace. And in chapter 3 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on 
Mount Moriah. On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, it was on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah sounds familiar, does it not? Mount Moriah is, is, is the place in Genesis chapter 22. Back When we go all the way back to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, you know that Abraham has finally received the son that he has wanted all of his life. A son by his wife, Sarah, a fellow by the name of Isaac. And one day, after God has promised him this son and has brought this son into reality by, 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 by making Sarah where she was barren to make her fruitful, she gives birth to this son. And one day the Lord comes and says, I want you to go to the region, of, to a mountain in the region of Moriah. And I want you to go to the place that I show you on top of that mountain and, and for, your, for you to make a sacrifice of your son. And he does this. You know, he travels for three days. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not this Mount Moriah is the same as the one that's mentioned here. I think it is. You know, where Abraham was there uh, when the Lord came to him was about 80 kilometers from Jerusalem or the area, the region of Moriah where this mount is probably at. And you'll remember that during the time of Abraham, there were no Roman roads. Traveling is slow. And this is the son of, of, of promise, the, the, the promised son that God has given to, to Abraham. And even though it's 80 kilometers and probably pretty easy if you're, you know, you're a modern day speed walker, he's going to sacrifice his son. Three days journey, walking slow. And it's in this particular area that the temple is built. And when it's all done and put together, Solomon dedicates it. And there is one of the most beautiful prayers you're ever going to read. And then we read, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Can you imagine light that bright and that heavy and, and that piercing that you cannot walk into it? I mean, you walk into a lit room and it's just, in fact, you want the light on when you walk into it. So, but this light is so heavy and so piercing and so holy that the priests, and it's so dense, light, that is so dense. It's like lightning that has struck and keeps its embodiment. It is so incredible and so heavy that they can't go into it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. And that temple is a beauty. And the glory of God settles into the temple. But as you know, it's not too much longer in history where Solomon begins to, to, to struggle with his own faith and his own, his own adherence and cohesion to God and God's will. And after his death, Rehoboam becomes king and Jeroboam comes out of Egypt who's been in exile because of a tiff with his, you know, a struggle with his dad Solomon. He comes back and you know the story. We'll get to it here in, in, in a couple of weeks. But the kingdom splits. You've got those ten tribes out of twelve. Ten form north Israel and the two tribes that remain in the south around Jerusalem form south Judah. 
And those ten northern tribes are not very faithful. In fact, they begin to develop all kinds of different ways of, and places of worshiping God. And idolatry enters into the place. And regardless of the number of prophets, beginning with Amos and going to Micah and, and going to Hosea, regardless of the number of prophets that go into northern Israel, in 721 B.C., as it had been said and prophesied, In 721 B.C., the Assyrians destroy north Israel. And they come in and and they they carry those ten tribes into captivity, never to be heard from again. And about 150 years later, the Babylonians do the same thing. There are big sieges around Jerusalem. There's one in 607 B.C., then one in 596, and then the big one in 586 B.C., where they completely tear apart Solomon's temple and they carry off the Ark of the Covenant, never to be recovered. Which now leads to the second temple. Temple number two is Zerubbabel. Seventy years after that first siege, when those people in, in, in 607, 606 begin to be carried off into Babylonian captivity, 70 years after that, in 536 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus has now come to power. The Babylonians are, are descending in power. The, the, uh, the Persians are the ones that are great in power. And their king Cyrus allows the captives of Israel to return to Israel under Zerubbabel as a governor and Ezra. And they begin to rebuild the temple. And they begin to lay its foundation and get that foundation shored up. And as soon as they get that done, the priests and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, they sing out just like they did with Solomon's temple. He is good. His love endures forever. But the sad thing is is that it's not going to be a great temple like the one of Solomon. Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. Wept because it just was not going to be the same thing. And the ironic thing is that this lesser temple is the one that stands for nearly five centuries. But it's so inferior that although there are three physical temples, there are only two in the minds of the Jewish people. Two temple periods. One is the temple period of Solomon. And then the second one is the temple period, and this is temple three, Herod. And Herod's temple is beautiful beyond description. It is a wonder. And one Passover, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and goes up to this this temple. And he enters into the court of Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is the largest of all of the divisions or courts of the temple. The, 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 the court of the Gentiles is the largest of the divisions. And you had to go through this court and able to get to all of the other ones. And it's here that all the business operations for the temple were set up. And when Jesus walks into this area, you know what he sees? He sees literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And you know what they're doing? They're buying and they're selling thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals at hundreds of locations within that that court. And besides that, there are hundreds of foreign money changers. And there are coins from all over the Roman Empire that are being traded. You know, Josephus, the, the the Jewish historian that's writing during the time of the of the Jewish rebellion against Rome, Josephus says that in one Passover week, one year that over 255,000 lambs were bought and sold for sacrifice. It would have looked like the stock market trading floor. 
wall-to-wall people shouting and, and yelling and trading and hoping that they don't get ripped off and, and getting angry when a deal doesn't go the way that they want. And Jesus walks into that. And in his mind, this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to find God. He's thinking about what Isaiah said in, that spe- in, the, in, in, in uh, chapter 54, in that section about the special servant. He's thinking about the, the, the temple being a prayer place for the Gentiles, for the nations. And it's in this court, the court of the Gentiles, that you, got, you find this kind of activity. And this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to find God? And Jesus begins to clear the temple. He begins to turn over things. We find in John chapter 2 that He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, He said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. That was one of the most jarring things that any first century Jew could have or imagined seeing or hearing around the temple. It just, it blew their minds. They, were, they, they didn't have a, a box for it. They thought that the Messiah was going to come and purge Israel of all of the foreigners, principally Rome. They're looking for a Messiah. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we're talking about the, the first century Jesus and, and, and what he's dealing with, with his own people and with the Romans, that there were a lot of ideas about what the Messiah would be like, what he would come to do, and even how many Messiahs there would be. But in the main, it was going to be about the Messiah was going to come in the main to reestablish Israel. He was going to get the Roman army boot off of their neck. He was going to, to, to make Israel pure again, and they were going to be that elect nation once again. They thought the Messiah was going to come and to purge Israel of all the foreigners, principally the Romans. But here is one claiming to be a Messiah who is an advocate for the foreigners. And so they asked for a miraculous sign. Prove your authority to be able to do such a thing. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And you know what they're thinking? If you read John's Gospel, you know what they're thinking. They're thinking, goodness gracious, it's taken Herod and all of us so many decades to build this thing. And you're just going to do this in three, you'll tear it down in three days and build it up in three days? We'd like to see that. And of course he was talking about his body. His life, which three years later, during this same time of year, the Passover, in this same place, this same mountain, another son was going to be offered up in the region of Moriah as a sacrifice. The only difference is during the time of Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice is ready and the hand is above Isaac only to be stayed. And you know the story how there is a ram that is found in the, by Abraham in a thicket. Its horns caught. And that's where the name for God, the very special name of God, Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh Yireh comes to us. God provides. But this time the hand is not going to be stayed. And this time there's not going to be a substitution for the Son. The Son, this time is going to be the substitute. 
This time, the Son would die as a substitute in order to, as the Hebrew writer says, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The temple is the place of the presence of God. The place where the forgiveness of sin happened. The temple, the place where God and man were reconciled, has now found its greater fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And He who is that cornerstone has turned us into living stones. I mean, you think about all of the metaphors of the church. It's a beautiful bride. We're sheep. All of them. And then you get to stones. He who is the cornerstone turns us into living stones. Why? Well, Peter picks up on that. And towards the end of, 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 of Peter's time, he writes to the church in general and says, you know, you come to Him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have time to talk about all of the different meanings for that verse. But uh, I want to leave you with just one thought. When you are brought into the kingdom of God and, and you have confessed your sins and you have made a commitment to no longer live your life in the direction of you, but to live it in the direction of God, and you've been baptized through faith in His death, burial, and resurrection. You have participated in that. So that as Jesus died to death, you too are dying to death. And as He was raised to newness of life, resurrection from the grave on the third day, as you come up out of the water, newness of life. You know, so many times we we think about that as, as a graduation, that now that I'm saved, as if the gospel was just about forgiveness. Or to think that the gospel was just about me getting into heaven. Or the gospel is just about me having my my conscience clean so that I could get some good sleep at night. You know, never in the Bible, never, ever, ever do you even find the hint that when you come into a relationship with God, that that's a graduation. In fact, the Bible calls it the complete opposite. It's a new birth. Which means from the day that you become a child of God, you are growing. And not just growing up into you, but you're growing up into a you that's conformed to the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8. And the fact that Peter, and the fact that Peter talks about this, this transformation and this, this change that comes over as a living stones reminds me of, of one of the things that people should see when, when they look at us. They should see us as trophies of grace. They should see us as people who have been, who have been bought at a great price. They, they should see so many things. But as we think about that living stone, Him as the cornerstone, living stone, this, this temple in which God dwells by His Spirit, is that at some point people should look at every single 
Christian, disciple of Jesus in this room and see something of the glory of God in their life. That's what it means ultimately to be redeemed. That's what it means to be saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is, is, is not that you're saved, but that you're saved by grace. The, the gospel is, is that God has not just saved you, but He has saved you unto Himself. The gospel is about the transformation that happens when people begin to understand that it's about God and how we went wrong and how God in His love and His justice and His righteousness and His mercy at great awful cost to Himself has, has brought us into relationship. But not just, not just to stay the same old person that before confession and repentance and baptism has just now you know, stepped over a line but has stepped over into a different kind of life. I don't know what kind of challenge you need in your life, but I dare say that one of the greatest challenges you will ever meet in this life is to fully understand the gospel in such a way that it impacts your life, that it transforms you and changes you. It gets all the way down inside of you and it triggers something that makes you, through God's Spirit, more loving and tender and gentle and kind and patient, self-controlled. Read Genesis, or, uh, Galatians chapter 5. In fact, I'll talk about that tonight. But they begin to see that in such a way that they see the great power of God and the great glory of God in you. And that's why we fellowship with each other the way that we do. That's why James says it's a terrible thing to gossip and to say terrible things about your brother or sister. Because you're speaking against the image of God. Peter would say, you know what? It's like you're cursing inside of the, the temple. You're using language that's not just inappropriate anywhere, but more inappropriate when you understand that God has built you with a bunch of other people into a a beautiful bride, a thing in which He dwells by His Spirit. I don't know where you are this morning. But maybe it's time for you to become a living stone. Maybe it's time for you to, to, to understand that it's not just about, uh, about o o obedience, doing things that you don't want to do, and, you know, sort of a legalistic way of thinking about your faith, but it's about the understanding that God is turning you into something beautiful. You know what the Old Testament law did? The Old Testament law, time and time and time again, was just a reminder that we're ugly, that we can never get close enough to God. And then the Gospel comes and reminds us that God, through Jesus, is making us beautiful, glorious. Glorious. And maybe it's time to recommit yourself to being a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth in such a way that you become that living stone. Or it might be that you're not that living stone at all, that you've been struggling with where your life is going and there are just things that are taking place in your life that, that don't make sense, but they're hurtful. And maybe they've been done by your own hand, maybe not. But what you need is a change. And the change that sticks, the change that is eternal, the blessing that is forever, the, the joy that is every day, the peace that passes understanding, the joy that is inexpressible is yours from the day you accept the gospel as God saving you unto Himself to the day that you see Him face to face.
Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and they would love to talk to you about how that could happen today. And Ben's going to lead us in a song, and we'd like to invite you to come down and to talk.